microphone. <clears throat> we'll be it's going, going live. That's fine. Will be supplemental um, in nature through you know vegan protein sources, highly highly fortified you know whey protein isolates that have got you know twenty different various vitamins and minerals, and you've got you know top quality whey protein, top quality soy protein, and because you're getting those nutrients in a short amount of time in the space of three four hundred calories, right, and then you focus the majority of your other calories on you know, the whole food, the fresh food aisles, you know, fruits and veggies that are perhaps nutrient, not as nutrient dense and very filling and satiating. Then yeah, if you spark up a nice combination of the two, then it's very, it's very possible to, you know, obtain all of your essential nutrients that will be um, not optimal, but it will be, um, your body will be able to synthesize the hormones and the relevant ratios that you need in order to sustain healthy living and to the point where you feel like things are sustainable and your body's not compensating so hard where it's pushing back at the calorie deficit almost. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I think we cover it later on in the chat as well. So for, we've gone live now. Dr. Ids, isn't it? It is Ids. Yes, Dr. Ids. Yeah, Ids. So give us a quick overview, Dr. Ids, for our community here whilst they're checking in. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Yeah, hi. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I don't know who's in. I, I, I don't, haven't. I've never streamed on Facebook before or been invited to a Facebook stream before. So, is it, this is nice and thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm Dr. Ids. Um, just call me Iddy or Ids is fine. I'm a UK qualified doctor from the University of East Anglia in Norwich. If anyone knows who that is, um, right, right, right on the east coast. And basically, alongside medicine, you know, uh, UEA have a very what I call integrated holistic style of medical school course where it's not just lectures and then you do hospital like from the first week of the first year we had you know lectures we were thrown in hospital we were thrown into gp practices we were thrown into you know live dissection where you're cutting up dead bodies you know like real <laughs> and you know we had group work as well so what what i felt like that did for us was allowed us to appreciate from early on that there's more to health lifestyle than simply being in the hospital or being, you know, studying textbooks, for example. Yeah. Right? So what that made, what that kind of conjured up in my head was over a few years, I, um, you know, felt a passion for preventative or lifestyle medicine alongside traditional medicine in hospital where someone comes in and they're already very ill, right? So alongside medicine I took time out in between my fourth and fifth years and I did an extra master's degree in research specifically on how to critique research how to analyze research and that was with a focus on nutritional research in particular so I actually conducted um, quite an in-depth research study um, on the link between diet and depression for example so you know how different nutrients can impact our mental health and that, that's, you know, it's not a particularly established scientific field at the moment, but in the past 15, 20 years, we've, we've been seeing the importance of not just medication and social interaction and physical activity, but now we're seeing the impact that nutrients have on our mental health. So that gives you an idea as to kind of my medical school journey and how I went into lifestyle nutritional medicine. Then afterwards, when I graduated, I came back to the West Midlands area. And now I'm doing lots of additional things like content creating, you know, I'm writing something and I'm doing the, uh, different courses. Yeah. 
yeah so lots of lots of exciting things coming up now your videos are great if anyone here hasn't seen them yet on tiktok and instagram they're just quick research like videos and you back everything up with research and because you know how to read research it's actually quite a rare skill because <laughs> everyone is sites research now it? we've gone from a, a stage in fitness where people did antidotal evidence as the main thing yeah. and then it was but this research there's this but they take a sentence out of a research study or an extract yeah. and now there needs to be the next stage where someone like you comes in and says actually you've just completely taken our research the wrong way. But talking about research, what's the most surprising thing you've noticed looking at different research? Because there's loads of, what we people would say, low quality research and then high quality research. So what's the actual difference, what we need to look out for you? Right, yes, interesting one. I mean, uh, nutrition science, fitness science, they're very, very different. They have different bodies of evidence, right? And I think it's important to establish because uh, typically, when someone thinks of low-quality evidence, they think of animal studies, case control studies, observational research, where all you're doing is you're, you're taking a group of people and you're observing them over a period of time, right? And you're looking for association. So if one group of people have higher amounts of saturated fat, and then what happens to their risk of heart disease over time, right? Mm. And people think that that is of a lower epidemiological quality than something like a randomized control trial where you've got people and you give them one you give them one exercise to do and the other people a different exercise and then you look at all of their blood markers their you know muscle gain their you know hypertrophy outcomes that's called a controlled study right and typically people think oh where is the randomized controlled trial that shows this and this we can't say cause and effect but typically that argument comes from people that don't really understand research too well because it shows the lack of nuance when you're looking at total bodies of evidence. In nutrition science, it's very, very tough to do long-term, large-scale randomized control trials. And the reason for that is, is because if we want to assess the effects of, let's say, sugar on someone's health, yeah, if my research question is, I want to see what table sugar does to someone's risk of heart disease, right? We then can't take 20 people, lock them in a lab, feed them sugar every day for 20 years, and then see, see what happens to their, to their heart later on, yeah? <laughs> you, you just ethically can't do that. That's just not possible. But so what, what you can do is you can take people that already eat lots of sugar every day, yeah? You can observe them you don't have to tell them to change their lifestyle you can observe them and then see what happens out of their own will over time and you can account for different variables like their physical activity like their saturated fat intake like their sleep quality like their social status their income their bmi their gender etc so in nutrition science specifically observational research actually holds more weight and if you do an observational study in nutrition science it can actually be of a higher quality than lots of randomized control trials, right? Whereas in the fitness industry, luckily there's not much that goes against ethics and there's, there's not, you know, telling someone to do a lap pull down for four weeks is not exactly groundbreaking. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna raise hairs on some, on the ethical panel's head. So fitness research and nutrition research, they're two very different things. And I think when people look at, you know, the, the level of evidence we need to be more granular and less black and white when it comes to studies just because a study is not randomized control trial does not mean it's a bad study 
And if you think yeah. that, then you lack you lack the nuance behind it, basically. So that that's a very key point. Yeah. Yeah, and like um, Amy is in our group. She does research and stuff like that. She's uh, I think she helps. Amy, do you help students? Peer reviewed studies. Here's the thing. I've hmm. heard in the nutrition or the fitness circle, there's a group. You know, you've you've cited him before, Brad Schoenfield and all that. There's there's a lot of people who would say that some peer reviewed studies are like biased and stuff like that. How would you how would we know that? So there's some journals that are claimed to be like worse standard than other journals, you know? Yeah. Um, for yeah. someone who just wants to like research nutrition on their own, is it is it even possible to find out what's good unless you're in the industry, you know? Okay, so research bias, right? You're asking about research bias. Well, yeah, and if the peers are reviewing that with a with a get yeah with a bias for that person who's actually submitting the research themselves. It is a critique at the moment in um, in the field, for some of the people are saying. I'm not sure how you would yeah. even know. The thing is, the thing is, when you want to assess the validity of a study, there are many factors, right? And I think one of them is going to be um, the journal that is published in is a very valid thing to look at. We have something called impact factor or, you know, how much engagement that a study has, um, how often it's cited, you know, the level of prestige that the journal has. That, and if you look at their peer review process, lots of journals differ by their peer review process. And I think generally speaking, the higher the impact factor of a journal, the more refutable, the harder it is to get into that journal and the higher quality of the peer reviewing process that occurs. So that's a very easy one for people to look at. It's not black and white. There are things that go into it. Um, yeah. The next thing I would say is when talking about research bias, if you're looking, for example, at the funding of a research study or, you know, the authors that might have ties to different organizations or whatever, I think that it's a very, um, it's a very convenient narrative to have, especially when someone wants to dispute the research findings, right? So let's say that you believe that you can lose weight without a calorie deficit, yeah? You will look at the research that shows you need a calorie deficit and say, oh, no, nah, the research is biased, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that narrative because it fits my view. Mm. The issue with that is, is that you're assuming that the only type of bias within research is from funding or is from authorship or publication bias. When actually, if you're holding that to a set standard, then you need to acknowledge that there are many other types of bias as well. There are governmental biases, there are, you know, political agendas um, by which a certain paper might help someone's political views, right? There are lots of types of bias that people never discuss. So if you're applying the same standards to industry funding or authorship research biases, then you're missing out on the fact that there is a whole host of other types of bias that you're not even talking about. So yeah. there's a bit of cognitive dissonance and there's, not, there's no logical... Um, thought process there. Essentially, when someone brings up bias or industry funding, it's often because they're trying to suit their own confirmation bias, and they're trying to they're trying to disregard any evidence against their view, and they're trying to just look at the handful of studies that fits their view, right? Yeah. So I think sense. unless unless you are highly educated in research critique bringing up different types of biases across a broad subject is just not going to, it's not going to hold weight because 
there are logical flaws within that thought process. Yeah, for sure. That's why it's interesting. Your 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 balance in this isn't very interesting coming into the industry, really, because there's not been someone doing that. But let's let's start then. So let's start from ground zero, base level. We know nothing. Let's build up on the truth of fact loss with women. Yeah. So the first is, and I'm just we know it's calorie deficit, but let's talk as if we don't know. The first step is we know there's a research to say we need a calorie deficit to lose weight, right? So let's look into that. That's a fundamental that most most people believe, right? Some people don't. But yes. what what research have you seen us into it? Hundred percent solid hardcore. Like what do we what do we know? Okay, the thing is, the first point to probably establish and to define what, what exactly we're talking about is a calorie deficit is simply the uh, energy balance law that is in place, which governs weight loss, no matter what strategy you're talking about. So when, when people say, you know, there are studies that prove a calorie, you need a calorie deficit, you can't prove a you know, a fundamental physical law of the it's a law, it's a law of the universe. Yeah, <laughs> like everything. It's, it's a law of the universe. So, so when someone loses weight, it is because they aren't intaking as much energy as they are expending. So just like when a comet is traveling down towards the earth, yeah, every single second, the comet is losing fragments of its mass. You're losing fragments because the comet has energy. So when the comet has kinetic energy and it's flying towards the Earth, you're losing particles, fragments, it's causing heat. And over time, the comet becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. It's yeah. impossible for that comet to have energy and to gain mass. You can't gain mass from anywhere. You are the mass, unless someone literally went and put a stone on top of the comet. You can't gain yeah. mass, right? So a calorie deficit is the fundamental law. Anyone that argues against a calorie deficit does not understand what we're talking about. Yeah, They're saying calories in, calories out is, is, is not the only answer. Then they're not understanding that hormones are part of the equation. They're not understanding that carbohydrates are part of the equation, that you know, poor sleep is part of the equation. So every single thing that we choose to do in our life and choose to eat and the effect that it has on our hormones, that will impact what happens to our calories in and that will impact what happens to our calories out. So if someone says I'm in a calorie deficit and I'm not losing weight, by definition, you are not in a calorie deficit. People, this is, this is a key point I want for the audience. People often confuse calorie restriction with a calorie deficit. Just because you are reducing the amount of calories you're eating, that does not mean by definition you are in a calorie deficit. So when I have many hundreds of comments and they say, oh, you know, I was in a calorie deficit for two years and I never lost any weight. No, what you did was you reduced your calorie intake. So you thought you were in a calorie deficit, but your compensatory mechanisms may have been altered where, you know, your activity was reduced or perhaps you weren't getting enough essential nutrients or it might have impacted your sleep in a way, which meant that the amount of calories you expended was not exceeding the amount of calories you were eating. So even if you did reduce your calories in, your calories out might have reduced a little bit to then match it again. So people confuse calorie restriction and calorie deficit. Just because you are reducing the amount you eat does not mean you are in a calorie deficit. Yeah, that makes sense. We've got the ground. That's the ground, 100%. Yeah. 
Now, the next level we can look at maybe is hormones. And you mentioned earlier the research is very hard to do the controlled trials and probably even harder for women, different cycles, different starting points. I'd yeah. imagine it's probably not impossible, but maybe one of the reasons why there's not as many studies. But what, what, what you've looked at, hormones, so let's let's create a picture so there's a woman she's in a calorie deficit right she's been in a calorie deficit six weeks she's saying she's not losing weight so say no she maybe she's not on a calorie deficit what's the hormonal profile we need to look at like is couldn't someone be have really low estrogen on high progesterone or all these things how much of an impact do they actually have on this person's you know energy balance or where their maintenance is Okay, interesting. So, so let's talk about one of the fundamental key stages in a, in a woman's life, and that's the menopause, right? And the reason why we're going to talk about this is because this, this greatly describes the hormonal differences and whether that affects anything or not. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's typical association. We see this in plenty of observational uh, country-large studies where during the, the, um, the menopausal or perimenopausal phase, it's very typical for a woman to gain five, six pounds within that one to two year period. Okay. And there is a shift in the, in the distribution of fat tissue within women as well. So what we typically see is we, we see a shift from uh, subcutaneous fat to an increase to visceral fat tissue. And this is, this is influenced by lots of different things. So you've got, you know, uh, a decrease in the levels of estrogen. And we know that estrogen um, plays an anabolic role with skeletal muscle and it also impacts uh, hormonal influences. And it also- Is it protective as well? Is it like a protective thing in terms of, remember we spoke to Lyle saying that higher estrogen is more like a, it's like a protective layer or whatever. Yeah. So it does, it's basically, it does um, promote, um, it has several anabolic characteristics. Um, it mm. has you know, the characteristic of even preserving muscle mass, preserving mm. fat tissue. So you're right in the sense that it does have protective effects. But what is actually happening is when you have the decrease in estrogen, as a consequence, typically we see around a 30 to 40% increase in visceral fat tissue, which is the deep gut fat, the deep stomach fat. That's big. That's yeah, a lot. Yeah, 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 it's big, it's big. And there's several mechanisms for this. So when you have the symptoms that arise from the menopause, not only do you have the hormonal changes, you also have uh, the psychological influence as well. So, you know, people have less motivation. They might have disrupted appetite signaling. There's evidence showing that um you know women post-menopause have decreased leptin sensitivity decreased insulin sensitivity and that's largely to do with the visceral adipose tissue right so even though you may not be gaining or losing weight you'll be shifting the proportion of different fat storages which can then influence what's going on later on and now mm. this this really useful study in 2020 by lombardo actually tested, I think almost 100 women, tested what happens when you put two groups of women, one menopausal, who were diagnosed as being menopausal, and the other group as being younger, you know, uh, age 45, who were still had the normal cycles, right? Mm -hmm. 
And what they found was that when you put both groups onto a Mediterranean style diet for several weeks, you know, they induced the calorie deficit, they reduced their, you know, calories to similar amounts, and they did, you know, minimal aerobic training. It wasn't to do with resistance training or anything. They just purely looked at diet. What happened was that both groups lost similar amounts of weight as long as your adherence to that diet was high enough. So both groups, no matter the age, no matter the menopausal, premenopausal, whatever, even though there are hormonal influences, if you adhere to that dietary program, then both groups lost around five, six pounds, I think, in the space of a few months. And there was no differences between body composition, um, blood pressure, but they did find that the, pen, that the menopausal group lost, um, had a greater reduction in LDL cholesterol. So the more harmful. And this was a Medi- this was a Mediterranean diet in both groups. This was a Mediterranean style diet. Style yes. diet in both. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, and it was it was individualized. But I think the key point here is that even though you've got these major changes in hormonal profiles, if you adhere to that dietary intervention, be rest assured that you will lose the same amount of weight, and it won't become harder. The reason why it does become harder is not because of the hormonal changes. It's because of the psychological, the symptomatic, and just feeling like crap, basically. So that should encourage women that are going through the change and people that say, oh, when I, you know, when I'm 50, I'm just going to be fat anyway because of my hormones. No, you are not acknowledging that you have a greater role on your weight management than you think. Don't put it down to hormones because the controlled evidence is there. We show that as long as you adhere to what it is that you're trying to achieve, you will have the same outcomes. And, you know, I think I don't want to invalidate anyone's difficulties or struggles because there are reasons why it's more difficult and hormones do make it more difficult. And that's because we might have an increase in appetite. We might have, you know, we have the the menopausal flush where you become sweaty, feverish, you feel hot and bothered, exercise becomes more difficult. You might become more groggy. You might become more, you know, lacking in patience, lacking in motivation. And those are perfectly valid reasons and reasons why it's more difficult. But sure. can't, it's not scientific to say that my metabolism has reduced so much that, you know, I don't produce any estrogen, therefore I can't grow any muscle. You can't say that because the evidence doesn't support that. So at the same time, there are difficulties, but we should know that, you know, medical interventions and research shows that as long as you do adhere to the best of your ability, you will have improvements. Yeah. And I wonder what your opinion is on the fact that they had a Mediterranean diet, probably with good, you know, olive oil and good fats. Like, and we speak about, maybe we can touch on fats influence on hormones and what would happen if they had a diet that wasn't rich in good fats. Do you think there would have been a change in anything? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because, because um, if you just look at the physiology of what's going on inside the gut in terms of the fat deposition and what influences that and what influences inflammation and, you know, blood lipids, you know, weight loss in itself does improve health, number one. So independent of calories, the moment you lose weight, regardless of how you lose the weight, even if you're the only thing you're eating is donuts, right? Right. Even if you lose weight, you will have an improvement in health. 
And that's because you're losing the excess adipose tissue. You're decreasing circulating inflammatory markers that affect your insulin sensitivity, your blood lipid profile, the amount of uh, fat around the liver you have. There's lots of these mechanisms, but independent of weight loss or not, the style and the type of food and diet you are following, that does also impact our sensitivity to hormones, the production of blood cholesterol, the breakdown of byproducts that are going in through our diet, the circulating inflammatory markers. And these are all independent risk factors for heart disease, type 2 diabetes, um, you know, fatty liver disease, hypertension, um, lots of these different conditions. And all of these conditions have valid reasons for why um, weight loss becomes harder. Yeah. So weight loss and your dietary pattern, they're different things and they impact our weight loss uh, and our health to differing amounts. But the Mediterranean diet would have had an additional positive effect on top of the five, six pounds that they lost. And mm. I probably hypothesize that the inclusion of the healthier fats, uh, the nuts, the legumes, the reduction in you know sugar sweetened beverages, I would probably hypothesize that that also had a pivotal role in the deposition of visceral fats and also the circulating inflammatory markers and also the leptin signaling and the insulin signaling. I think that that would have had an independent effect, even if they never lost any weight, I think they would have had improved health outcomes as well. So when you talk about leptin and uh, maybe we can explain this, so you're saying that when they did eat that they would have had a better more accurate response to fullness or like what they would have felt full of when yeah, they so, so leptin signaling is very complex and leptin is typically is typically produced and released by the actual fat depots and the actual fat stores um so when you have a resistance and you have excess adipose tissue especially within the gut what happens is your body doesn't respond well to the signals that leptin is trying to tell you so, for example, take two people that, have, that are 70 kilograms, right? One person has 50% more visceral fat than the next person, but they weigh the same weight and they have the same total body fat, right? It's just the one person has more visceral fat. The person that has more visceral fat, if you give them the same meal, they won't feel as full from, from that meal. So when you look at the science behind weight loss, how you respond to that meal is also very important. Oh, very important, yeah. That will dictate what happens the evening, the next day, what happens to your sleep, what happens to your hormonal balances. So leptin signaling, appetite signaling is a very crucial point. And we can, we can, we can mitigate some of the risks by focusing on food quality rather than just total calories. So that's a key. And, and in terms of food quality, would you be saying sticking to the, the good fats in that sense? Or is there any, anything else you've seen? Yeah, there's loads. There, I mean, there's loads. There's, there's um, the distribution of the different fats we have does play a very pivotal role um, because, you know, saturated fats have been shown to basically clog up the insulin cell signaling pathways. So when imagine you've got a fat cell and you're trying to stuff loads of you're trying to stuff loads of you know glucose within that within that cell, right? You've got insulin's action on that cell. Then what happens is when you have lots of saturated fats coming into the bloodstream, those free fatty acids can interfere with that cell signaling pathway between glucose and 
uh, uh, sugar storage and cell mm -hmm. storage. So when you're trying to push more and more glucose in the cell, that saturated fat comes in and it blocks that pathway. So what happens is you get a backlog of free fatty acids coming back into the bloodstream. And when that happens, you then get insulin resistance. Then when you get insulin resistance, that can then affect what happens to your appetite cues later on. So mm. there's a cascade of events that occurs when you focus, when your diet is predominantly saturated and transunsaturated fats versus mono and polyunsaturated fats. And then, you know, there's lots of mechanisms by which omega-6s, omega-3s can also influence um, appetite cues and the way in which we store fat as well. So, yes, it's, it is very it's, complex. It's complex, right? And I've, I think you've spoken about this before, about the fact that whilst it's all complex, we still need to bring it into the, the realm of action or pra practical yes. uh, advice, right? So if someone asks the question, like, what does that translate to? So there's someone, many women on our program, menopause, uh, they're now looking, right? So I've heard fats, I've heard saturated fats, I've heard polyunsaturated fats. Like, what's actually the takeaway from this, would you say, um, for so these women? The takeaway would be, would be, you know, to perhaps to perhaps be conscious of how many um, how much fried food servings we're having, not just because of the actual thing that's being fried, but because when you heat various oils um, for for a prolonged period of time at a high enough temperature, we can actually change some of those fats to being transunsaturated fats. So even if, you take, even if you take a vegetable oil that's high in omega-6s and low in saturated fats, actually the way in which you prepare that food does have an influential role into the mm. actual biochemical structure of those fats, right? And we know now it's, it's, it's well established that um, trans and saturated fats are the most harmful to our health in terms of heart disease, um, atherosclerosis risk, insulin resistance. So even though you may be using a good fat, you know, mm. prolonged heating for prolonged periods of time, like we see in deep frying, that has a harmful effect. So I think be cautious of the amount of servings of fried food we're having. That's number one. Number two would be don't be stingy on your salads when it comes to, you know, including lots of healthy extra virgin olive oil, you know, even some vegetable oils, people, people love to demonize vegetable oils, but actually the overwhelming amount of evidence shows it's very, it's beneficial for our health overall. Um, it's the style of method of processing that becomes the issue which we've already talked about. Um, so that, there, are, there are some good tips there, but I'd also say focusing on a couple servings of fatty fish in the week and not so much fatty red meats, right? even though you want high um, portion servings of protein, you know, high quality amino acids, lots of the essential amino acids, you can get the same things from fatty, from fatty fish, but also with the added bonus of being extra filling, being extra high in those omega-3s, those omega-6s, those monounsaturated fatty acids, which will then also influence what happens to our blood glucose response, our insulin response, our appetite signaling later on. So those are some very key ways. And also in a salad, don't be scared to throw in some, you know, some seeds, some nuts, some cashews, some peanuts, some macadamia nuts, whatever, you know, give it a bit of extra bulk. Mm. And I think 
people are often scared because you know nuts are calorific or you know um a, you know a tablespoon of olive oil just a waste of calories no it's not a waste of calories because what you're missing are the indirect consequences of consuming those healthy fats later on they do a good job at regulating lots of the things we've talked about later on so even though you're having a higher calorific meal here subconsciously and physiologically it will be benefiting you later on and towards the evening and then also the next day as well because of all the hormonal yeah. and the different changes that, that we've talked about so those are some oh, yeah it's fascinating the cooking's yeah. fascinating and i think just thinking back to the italians i've been on a trip through italy like olive oil and everything and it's like everything heat i just make sense like they, they know they they've probably known the benefit without really knowing the science over the hundreds yeah. of years thousands of years you know um so that's interesting and there's a question come up here now which is good to touch upon because with our community and our app we we give people their macros and and, and deficit but we allow people to, to change their ratio of carbs and fat make to maintain the deficit so whatever you prefer higher fat diet lower fat sure. we let them do that as long as calories are you know fixed and protein is at a certain amount but for people now listening to this going right i've heard you need to eat more fats and we say you need to eat a decent amount of fats. What's the grams or percentage of calories, which is going to be a difficult question because if you're in a deficit, the percentage yeah. will be smaller. Yeah. How many grams of fat? Well, have you seen any research on how many actual grams of fat that women would need to optimize these things and without going over? Because now someone might go, well, I would just add fat to absolutely everything. And like you said, there is that stigma of fats high in calories. But someone listening here might have two avocados a day you know, 80 grams of fat on top of everything else and we'll overdo it because that's what everyone does. <laughs> right. Yeah. As you've already alluded to, that's a very, it's a very complicated question because it depends on exactly what your dietary protocol is, how, you know, how heavy you are to begin with. Right. Um, it also depends on how restrictive you're trying to be. What's the rate of your weight loss. So gen Kate, generally speaking, yeah it's not a good idea to do a, a super low fat diet yeah. Yeah, for any prolonged period of time, even if you are very, very overweight. It's just, it's just not a good idea because fats, dietary fats play crucial roles in you know, micronutrient absorption, in hormone synthesis, hormone release, hormone functioning, in um, cell signaling pathways, in the production of healthy cells, the rejuvenation of healthy cells, you know, the health of our liver, our kidneys, our heart tissue, you know, the nerves and the nerve, um, the, uh, what's it called? The neurotransmitter impulses between our brain, skeletal muscle, uh, central nervous system. Fats play such a crucial role in all of that. So I can't give a figure of grams, but what I can say is if you're, if you're thinking about doing a super low fat diet, I would advise against that. And, you know, whereas with carbohydrates, you don't need to be as stringent or as concerned with going super low calorie with carbohydrates, because the only real, I wouldn't say the only benefit, but probably the main benefit with having or, you know, ensuring carbohydrates are in your diet is that, you know, it aids satisfaction, it aids adherence, and it allows you to consume foods that you love consuming, Right. I don't think that, you know, there are lots of natural forms of carbohydrates that have lots of other nice nutrients, but those nutrients don't necessarily have to be gotten from those foods. They can be gotten elsewhere. It just might make sure. it 
it just might make it a little bit harder. Uh, but, you know, I'm not saying that the keto diet is very good. What I'm saying is you need to be more careful with how you restrict fats than you do with how you restrict carbohydrates. Because the body is can indeed function on minimal carbohydrates. It just physically can't function on no fats. You cannot function on no fats. You know, the body would just take a massive toll. Your hormones will go to absolute rubbish. Um, your sleep will go to rubbish. Your mental health will go to rubbish. Your brain capacity cognition will go to rubbish. And then alongside your food choices, your preferences, all of that stuff. So I think, yeah. you know, always maintaining a decent amount of fats within your diet, but you try to not make them liquid fats. Don't always make them liquid fats. Try to consume, you know, actual food. Because I know now if I got a jar of peanut butter that is like this size, right? It's like half of this bottle. If I got a jar of peanut butter, a jar of peanut butter is like 2,500 calories. Yeah. I could eat that quite easily. Like if you gave me some bread, I could lather it on and eat the whole jar pretty much. That is my, that is my entire day's worth of calories for, you know, a 75 kilogram man that does a bit of exercise. Yeah. Obviously that's not going to keep me satisfied for the whole day. So when it comes to nut spreads, oils, butters, we should be mindful that yes, we do need the fats, but if you want to maintain satisfaction, try to stick to the actual, the actual solid food versions of fats. So your nuts, your seeds, your healthy um, fatty fishes, you know, your fish, um, and also a little bit in meat and a little bit in uh, other grains and mm. things like that as well. And if you want yeah. a nice spread, then have a nice spread as well. But I think being mindful as to where we get our healthy fats from is also quite important. Yeah, bang on. That's great advice. I think it, we're all used to, again, Sarah makes a point here, like when we go for the Greek yogurts, we go for the 0% fat Greek yogurts, you know, to maximize our carb. But maybe we should go for the 5% fat Greek yogurts, you know, yeah. and uh, just have that in. So that's important. So everybody, make sure to check your fat intake. Maybe share in the group afterwards. We can have a look. Um, okay, so there's two, we'll go to two questions because I know your time is here. But I yeah. think we start with, Amy, I was saying, what does AIDS think about influencers who promote intermittent fasting? Um, I think you did a post on this, but yeah. Yeah. Your debt was intermittent yeah, fasting it's, it's, is it actually benefits to it. Oh yeah. The, okay. Let's just let's just clear this up now. There is no doubt at all intermittent fasting is a very beneficial way for someone that is overweight that wants to improve their health. There's no that that you can't you cannot argue that. The issue I have with people promoting intermittent fasting is they promote it any whether it's alternate day, 16, 8, 24 you know, five to whatever method you're going for. I have an issue with people that say that intermittent fasting is superior to other forms of energy restriction, right? When we have literally, we have dozens of control studies, meta-analyses, literature reviews of lots of independently funded, you know, different demographics, different populations, countries, ethnicities, genes, whatever. There is an abundance of evidence showing that when calories are matched intermittent fasting versus any other method does not increase the amount of weight that you lose. Okay. Now there is a higher level to this, which, which I don't talk about too often because it's a little bit complicated. I'll touch on it briefly. There's a higher level to this, that intermittent fasting where your eating window is in the earlier part of the day. Yeah. 
that does have additional benefits over and beyond how many calories you're consuming. So there was a very, very, you should look at this study as well. Um, Elizabeth Sutton et al, 2018. Um, this was a very good and controlled intervention where they had two groups of people. One group had the total amount of calories within a six hour time frame from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the second group who were having the same amount of calories, they consumed their calories from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. So a 12 hour window, right? What they found was without any changes in weight, the group that consumed the calories in the earlier part of the day had improved insulin sensitivity, oxidative stress, I think markers in blood pressure as well, right? So that shows that the amount of calories they were consuming wasn't the factor that improved their health. It was the fact that their eating window was earlier in the day and that better aligns with our circadian rhythm or circadian biology. So mm. if we tie this into intermittent fasting, you could argue, you could argue that intermittent fasting does have superior benefits to any other form when your eating window is earlier and you stop eating or reduce your calories earlier in the day. Because our body is very efficient at metabolizing nutrients when, we're, when we are awake, our sleep-wake cycle, our insulin is much more effective, our blood glucose homeostasis is much more effective, our lipids are much more effective in the day. So you could argue that there are additional benefits when you avoid eating late at night, right? But when it comes to weight loss outcomes, total calories will always be, you know, will always be the bread and butter. But it is also a good idea to focus your calories earlier rather than later. And not just because of the metabolic differences, but also because when you have a large breakfast, you're going to feel more energized and more, you know, motivated to get up and walk. You know, your neat, your non-exercise activity might be increased compared to someone that has all of their calories at 10 p.m. Right? Yeah. So imagine, imagine you've, you know, you've, it, you're hungover on a Sunday or whatever. I don't drink myself, but I know many people do. You know, you're hungover on a Sunday. You're lying in bed for 14 hours. You, you've not eaten anything. And the first thing that you've eaten was 10 p.m. You order a big Domino's pizza, right? In that 12 hours of you being awake or whatever it is, you've not got up and gone for a walk. You've not got up and done chores around the house. You haven't been to the gym. You haven't done anything productive. So even though you're consuming the same amount of calories, because you're consuming them later, that might have indirect negative effects on your weight loss as well. Mm. So when people say the timing of your calories does not matter, that's not true. The timing of your calories does matter. It just might not be because of direct consequences. It might be because of indirect consequences. It right. makes sense. So if we were to practically look at this, would you say that maybe a good solution is for people to say, if you've got a lot of weight to lose, is first of all, get into a deficit. Yeah. No matter what, maybe if you have to eat in the evening, you have to, you've got kids, you come home from a stressful day, you've got no calories left, you might struggle. Yeah, of course. And then after you've then after you've achieved a bit of weight loss and you're in the groove, maybe then start looking at moving the calories to the morning as opposed to the evening. You know, maybe that's quite a good strategy for people yeah. to go into. Front, front. I, I do this with all my patients and clients anyway. Front loading calories is always a good idea. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whatever your goal is, whether it's building muscle, whether it's weight loss, whether it's you know reducing your blood pressure, whether it's complex medical conditions like you know, fatty liver disease or insulin resistance, 
shifting the proportion of your calories from later to earlier in the day is always a good idea. There is no circumstance where it's not beneficial for sleep, even for sleep quality, even for lots of other things as well. So that's, that's, in, that, that's interesting because I, I, th- I don't know if you've seen a study I'll share with you about um, what happens if we don't get enough sleep on our eating calories. And they looked at the sleep, people who didn't have enough sleep, they didn't consume more calories in breakfast, lunch or dinner. They consumed more calories on post dinner snacks. That's when yeah. all the extra calories came from. And then that would impact sleep again and make it worse. So then it's a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy in a sense. Yeah. So to get out of that loop. Yeah. Late, think, night, yeah. late night eating is a very, it's a very uh, nuanced topic and it has lots of different direct and indirect effects. But mm. late night eating will affect your sleep anyway. Even if you don't notice it, because your blood and your body's efforts are going to digesting food, you're less likely to be rejuvenated in the N3, N4 stages of sleep. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is because of the uh, front-loading calories and it being more beneficial for movement, for need and for eat as well. So that's the second thing. There's also differences in how we metabolize nutrients in the night, you know, poorer glucose tolerance, poorer blood, blood lipid tolerance, um, and lots of different things there as well. But also... There's evidence that the food reward centers in the brain are more sensitive to uh, late night circadian eating. So if you're not satisfying your cravings earlier in the day, they're going to hit you with more vengeance later on. And that's why why this late night snacking and craving is a massive, it's a big thing, right? You can can easily suppress it by allowing yourself to have that chocolate at 2 p.m., why do you have to have it at midnight? Just have it earlier mm. on. And that way your brain can, you know, your natural habitual uh, dietary habits, they can then be suppressed for later on and you've got a better chance of doing better later on in the day. So there's lots of, there's very lots interesting. of things on there. Very interesting. Yeah. No, this is very interesting. Yeah, because, you know, it's often people just stick to calories and hit protein and stuff. Don't really look at this stuff, this level of stuff. I think testing it out would be interesting. I'm definitely going to try it. Um, I thought this started at eight. Will I be able to watch a record? Yeah, 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 you will. Yeah, a lot of people resonate and it's a lot of people are not. Emma Jackson rarely eat breakfast. Might be time to give it a go and see see the changes. Um, there's been a question here, John, about, about sugar. I know you've covered sugar with depression, which is interesting. And I think maybe that's another talk we could do with a lot more time because it's got probably in depth. But sugar, women, hormones, what's the verdict for you? On this regard, I mean, it's a very vague question, but say someone with a moderate sugar intake versus a high sugar intake, what is the difference? What's happening? Yeah, so I mean, we need to we need to try and be specific specific with with that topic because uh, there's so many avenues that I I can go down. If we're talking about, let's the- talk about fat loss first, maybe let's talk okay, fat loss fine. first. Fine, fine. So, well, sugar and fat loss, okay. First of all, let me just clear the misconception that sugar is not inherently addictive. Okay. No. People think it is, it is addictive. If it was addictive, psychologic, psychologically and phys- physiologically speaking, we would see people rushing for table sugar and just downing spoonfuls yeah, of table I would say the shop, a cane sugar. <laughs> you don't, any, in any shop you go to, you will find table sugar will never be sold out. They, yeah. it, it will always be there. The issue is, is that I'm not saying that sugary, sugary foods are not addictive. What I'm saying is the sucrose itself is not addictive. 
Okay. What is very interesting are the links between, have you heard of the golden ratio of food? That's a very, it's a very interesting um, psychological theory about food, right? And about food marketers and food manufacturers have really nailed this one in the head. What they've done is they figured out the specific proportion of sugar, uh, yeah. sugars, fats, and salt mm. with, within a food product, right? Which overemphasizes and stimulates certain food reward centers in the brain, yeah. which really make it hard for you to feel satisfied. So I know myself when I, if I'm really hungry, right? And I get a box of six Krispy Kreme donuts. Yeah. I could easily finish those six donuts. Like give me, yeah. 15, give me 15 minutes and I will finish them. But guess what? That's like 3000 calories. How the hell have I just eaten 3000 calories in 15 minutes? Yeah. You try and do that with chicken breast. You will not, no way. You, you will not succeed. Right. Mm. So what's happening is, that there seems to be a specific ratio of sugars to fats to salt, which actually overemphasizes certain food reward centers in the brain, which gets us to feel less satisfied with the food we are eating. So even though sugar is not addictive, what might be slightly addictive and we might crave more are the hyperpalatable savory fatty foods and the hyperpalatable sweet fatty foods. So I think the key point here is sugars to fats and fats to salt. They're the two main things. Because if you look at actually um, food addiction studies, they actually found that just sweet foods were not the problem. No one, no one craved, you know, no one had a real problem with uh, reducing their hard candies and their lollies and their sweets, right? Things that are pure sugar. They have a problem with the savory fatty foods and the sweet fatty foods. Yeah, they're the, they're the two biggest components. So when it comes to fat loss, we don't need to worry about sugar too much. What we need to worry about are the hyperpalatable savory foods like pizza, like savory donuts, like, you know, lovely uh, kind of junk food, fried food, fatty foods, you know, fish and chips. that have got a nice bit of salt, a nice bit of fried fat on there. These are all combination of foods that just do wonders for our brain. Okay. So don't worry about sugar, worry about the fatty savory and the fatty sweet foods, number one. Number two, sugar sweetened drinks, there's no real benefit for them unless you are an ultra marathon runner and you're running six hours a day and you need to hydrate yourself afterwards. Unless you are in that category, we don't need sugar sweetened beverages. So we don't need our full sugar Coke, we don't need our full sugar Lucozade. If, if you like the taste, Artificially sweetened beverages are great. They're absolutely yeah. great. There was actually uh, a meta-analysis of 17 control studies I cited recently um, that was published this year. I advise everyone to look at it. That actually tested what happens when you replace people that constantly consume sugary drinks and you switched it with artificial sugar drinks and water. What happened between the two groups? The people that went from sugar to water improved their health. Yes, they did. But the people that went from sugar to artificial sugar improved their health more. Mm. The reason why that happened is because when you go cold turkey from sugar to no sugar, your brain is going to crave out somewhere else. So, you know, these people were likely indulging in more sweet foods in more, you know, in more things to compensate the taste that they were getting from drinks like this. 
right? So not only did the artificially sweetened group have no calorie drinks, their body allowed them to sense the taste of something sweet, which helped suppress their urges later on, which meant that the health improvements in their insulin, their glucose, their blood lipids, and their body weight were actually better than those that went from sugar to water. So if you're the type of person that loves sugary drinks, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend cutting it out. I would recommend finding alternatives like low-calorie squash. I live off low-calorie squash. I don't even mm. consume water anymore, right? Because I know, <laughs> I know if I didn't drink this, I would not be drinking much. Yeah. So, so this is a reminder and a nice taste for me to get my hydration in. And that's why I've had to talk about it so much because people demonize sweeteners all the time. All the time. There's no solid evidence that they cause any established harm in humans. That's it. No, yeah, it's an important point. And I think like, and I think this is a great point to finish with us because Sarah's saying um, there's so many things to consider. It can be quite overwhelming for people on the start of the journey. So if we were to create like, you know, the doctor here to all these people, we start off with, you said, there's a, there's a clear benefit to losing five tenths on your body weight. If you're yeah. overweight, no matter how you do it. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first step. Let's get some weight loss going, mm. calorie deficit. After that, would you say that optimizing, would you say that having an increase in protein is then the next step? Or would you say it's saying, is it making sure that the fats are there? Is it making sure that the calories are in the morning versus evening? What's the next progression in your opinion? I would say, I would say, you know, you know, something that would actually um, encompass all of those things you're talking about is reducing the amount of calories from ultra processed foods. So obviously we, we, we briefly discussed that there are some ultra processed foods that are highly beneficial, like protein powders, like, you know, high protein bars or cookies or, you know, protein shakes, whatever that, that that's fine. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I, I think after you initially lose a bit of weight, prioritizing calories from minimally processed foods that are, you know, that resemble the actual food itself pretty much, that would actually tackle the increase in healthy fat issue, that would tackle the increase in high quality protein issue, that would increase the um, vitamins and minerals issue as well. So just that one practical habit will tackle all of the points you just made. You would increase your high quality protein. You would increase your healthy fats, your seeds, nuts, legumes. You would increase your uh, micronutrient intake, which would better your mental health, your exercise performance, your fat synthesis, your hormone synthesis. So if there's one practical thing to start, I would say decreasing the amount of calories from ultra processed foods which are highly refined. I'm talking, you know, your donuts, your crisps, your biscuits, your cakes, your desserts, your fried foods, your, you know, your deli meats, your ready meats, your sausages, your pepperoni, all that kind of stuff. Obviously have, have, have them, it's fine. But what I'm saying is control studies show that even just making that one change can reduce your calorie intake subconsciously by five, 600 calories. Not only that, I'm, there's evidence that even if you have the, a highly processed food and an unprocessed food with the same protein, fats, and carbs in both foods, the highly processed food has a lower thermic effect than the yep. unprocessed food. So the funny thing is people think, oh, it's just, a, you know, thermic effect is just about protein. No, actually, 
the structure of the food you're having the food within actually affects how many calories your body uses to digest that food as well. So the thermic effect is reduced, you know, our ad libitum or our spontaneous calorie intake will also be reduced. Our micronutrient intake will be increased. Our protein will be increased. Our healthy, fat, our, our healthy fats will be increased. And then we can supplement some ultra processed foods with things like whey protein powders, protein cookies, protein bars, you know, high fiber, fiber one bars, fiber one bars are very good. You know, they, they contain eight, nine grams of fiber, which, you know, we don't eat enough fiber anyway. Um, so those, that strategy, I think will be probably the most successful and beneficial strategy for anyone wanting to start or anyone wanting to refine their dietary choices, because just that one strategy has a net positive impact on all the things we've talked about. Yeah, for sure. That's really good, practical as well. I think it, it can be overwhelming, right? All this stuff. Like you probably know so much information in your head, about all this stuff. But yeah. if you actually said it all, nobody would that's even why, start anyway. That, that's why the one minute videos are, you know, I like a lot. And this kind of longer format, I do enjoy going into detail. But at the same time, you know, the average person is, is just not, is just, it's going to be hard to comprehend really. So yeah, sure. I, that, that's why I think tying it back to these practical steps is always a good idea. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, guys, I hope you had a good time. I think, okay, as we bring you back for maybe the, the sugar and depression link you've, you've seen and uh, stuff oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, I yeah. think, I know, like, you know, these things we can go into more depth and then, yeah, happy days. But stay on for a second. I'll see, I'll come to the group. Guys, thank you so much for joining. I'll uh, see you all tomorrow. Okay, stop.